in our series with Asaph, we have been uh, miserable and triumphant. Last week we were, what do triumphant Christians sing? But this week we're back to trouble. It's quite unnerving this week to think of someone like Robin Williams that beneath such a hilarious persona, there could be such a deeply troubled man. A man for whom death could seem the only comfort. It's quite unnerving. Now, we don't know much about Asaph. My guess is that there were times when he would have gone up to the temple to lead God's people in worship, and he didn't feel like singing. You know, he was privately and personally deeply troubled. And he had to stand up in front of people and lead them in the worship of God. You know, he's asking these questions and his people are looking for answers. Now in this psalm, rather refreshingly, Asaph calls a spade a spade. He tells you like it is. He lays himself completely bare. He asks some of the most penetrating questions a Christian could ask. But having gone through this struggle, and having come through it, he pens it. And he pens his song so that this song can become your song and my song. And as we engage with him in this psalm, we see a real distraught darkness. If you've enjoyed the Psalms of Asaph, uh, you'll love Spurgeon's commentary on the Psalms called The Treasury of David. But in Spurgeon's comments on this Psalm, he starts off with a prescript that says this, this is for experienced saints only. See, here we have a transcript of Asaph's inner conflicts. And it's raw. And maybe tonight that is you. You, know, you can smile for the selfies and you can laugh with your colleagues and you can be polite with strangers and you can hold it together with your family. But personally, privately, you're deeply, deeply troubled. And my guess is for you that if you're coming out of that experience, then opening your Bible is like trying to prize open a clam. You know, it's hard. It's a miracle you're even here this evening. Well, rather than give you the whole of Psalm 77, I want to give you one verse, and maybe even just one phrase. Here's where I want us to focus tonight. Verse 19. It'll come up on the screen. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Maybe you can just take one phrase tonight. Your path was through the sea. I was reading again this week uh, this book, which is called The Letters of Samuel Rutherford. He was a a Christian pastor who was born in the 17th century. Uh, And this is a compilation of some of the letters, a prolific letter writer. And in these letters, he writes as a broken man to broken men and women. Uh, Spurgeon, who was already quoted, said of these letters, 
When we are dead and gone, let the world know that Spurgeon held Rutherford's letters to be the nearest thing to inspiration which can be found in all the writings of men. There's something to write. But as a broken man, he writes to a friend called James McAdam, and he writes this. I have been cast down and heavy with fears and haunted with challenges. And this is a phrase I want to focus on. Come up on the screen. I was swimming in the depths, but Christ had his hand under my chin all the time and took good heat that I should not lose breath. Now we thought at the start of the service, the Christian has a firm place to stand. But maybe tonight it feels like you're swimming in the deep. And maybe even tonight you won't come away with a firm place to stand. My hope is that you will at least know the hand of Christ beneath your chin. And in some ways that quote from Rutherford sums up Psalm 77. I was swimming in the depths, but Christ had his hand under my chin all the time. Now, I want to use verse 19, the imagery of it, the language of it, to let the rest of the psalm unfold. Verses 1 to 9 could be summarized like this. My head was sinking beneath the sea. Now, we're not given a vivid insight into what was the cause of the psalm writer's distress. We don't know. But we are given a vivid insight into the effects of his distress. He comes to us and he says, listen, here is how it feels, all right? It feels like an assault on all of me. You'll know if you've been there that pain is never just physical. It never just affects one part of you. It's all-encompassing. That depression is never just in the mind. It is everything that you are. That agony is not just in one member of your body, but it encompasses the whole. Look at the language of the psalm. This is an assault on all of me. Verse 1, my mouth is crying. Verse 2, my heart is distressed. My eyes are seeking. My hands are stretching. My soul is inconsolable. Verse 3, my body's groaning. My spirit is fainting. Verse 4, my eyes are wide open. I can't sleep. Eventually, my mouth is silenced. Verse 6, my heart is musing. My spirit is inquiring and my mind is questioning. It's all of me. All of me is sinking. You've maybe been there. On the one hand, crying. On the other hand, not knowing what to say. On the one hand, knackered. On the other hand, being totally unable to sleep. On the one hand, questioning. On the other hand, never finding any answers. So he compares his past to his present, and the past memories crush his present spirit. It may be that the context of the psalm is the same as Psalm 74. We thought that possibly the context of that psalm was the destruction of Jerusalem by the Assyrians. Uh, Maybe that, and so he's maybe saying, do you know what? When I compare what happened on Mount Sinai to what's happened on Mount Zion, well, I'm in the valley. It may be, though, that the situation is far more personal and intimate. 
But you see, in this moment, even the sweetest things turn sour. Have a look at verse 3. The sweetness of memories of God now cause him to groan. They're totally sour. Verse 6. The sweetness of when he used to sing to God in the night is now totally soured. It saps. And so these immaterial memories trump his concrete, or trumped by his concrete pain. And these questions follow. Has God rejected me forever? Has his favor gone? Has his unfailing love vanished? Has his promise failed? Has his mercy been forgotten? Has his compassion been withheld? Will spring never follow this long and dreary winter? My heart, my head was sinking beneath the sea. Now it's intriguing to ask, why didn't God edit this bit out, the Psalms? Why didn't he veto this? You know, if Sarah came and wrote this song, my wife Sarah, and wrote this song, Andy's love has vanished forever, his favor's disappeared, he's only angry all the time, and said, let's sing this at Charlotte next Sunday. On the pastoral team, I'd be pretty heavily arguing, listen, we're not singing this. Why didn't God veto this? Actually, he's saying, you know what, this song can be your song. Brokenness is okay. Tears are okay. Questions are okay. Doubts are okay. So long as, as with Asaph, they push us in the right direction. That is, they drive us to God. Notice what Asaph does. He prays. He doesn't just cry out, but he cries out to God. Days of distress must be days of prayer. That is, when we feel like we're in the sea, we must not just turn to man or turn to medicine, but turn to our maker. We must not just turn in upon ourselves, but must look up to God. He cries aloud. What else does he do? He cries aloud again and again. Verse 1, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. Verse 2, untiring hands. That is to say, he does not allow seemingly unending distress to bring an end to his prayers. You could say he's like a persistent widow. Again and again. And thirdly, what he does is he vocalizes his questions. He turns his thoughts into verbal questions. Isn't it very easy for thoughts to turn us into turmoil? And when they remain thoughts, they get totally blown out of proportion. We often think that our thoughts and our feelings are always right. They're always true. But actually, when you verbalize them, it starts to show you sometimes how ridiculous your thoughts have been. Verbalizing them has an almost therapeutic effect. It sharpens the issue. It opens them up to reason, and it pushes us to find an answer. So as Asaph asks these questions verbally, He's bringing them out into the open and allowing light to be shed on them. 
And as he vocalizes, it brings him to find answers. And so from sinking beneath the sea, a turning point comes in verse 10. Having questioned, he finds an answer. You can summarize it. Verse 19, your path led through the sea. See, the key to change in this psalm is not a change in circumstances. He's still in the sea. It's not a change in circumstances. It is a change in his mind. It is a change in his attitude. It is a turn from self to God. Now, I've got you to underline and circle all these first-person pronouns in the first part of the service. What is the point in that grammar lesson? Well, in verses 1 to 6, 18 times comes up these first-person singular pronouns. 18. In those verses, only six mentions of God. In the last eight verses, how many mentions of I or my? None. How many mentions of God? 21. See, self-help sinks. But a turn to God brings clarity. And so as he turns from self to God, he finds, as it were, these two hands beneath his chin. And what I want to do tonight is to use this phrase, your path led through the sea, to be, as it were, two hands of Christ keeping your chin above water. See, there is a double meaning in this phrase, your path led through the sea. First meaning, it is a reminder that God has been powerful in the past. That is the first hand beneath the chin of Asaph. God was powerful in the past. All the language in verses uh, 10 onwards sings of the Exodus. You ought to have been able to hear the echoes of Exodus 15 that we read earlier on. If you don't know the story, God's people were oppressed and enslaved in Egypt, but God brought salvation from the oppressor and uh, redemption from slavery. That is, he did mighty miracles before the Pharaoh of the land and eventually led his people through a pathway in the sea. Freedom from slavery and salvation from their oppressor. And so the language, if you look, let me read some of the phrases from Exodus 15. Your right hand was majestic in power. That's verse 10 of Psalm 77. Again, Exodus 15, you were majestic in holiness. That's verse 13 of Psalm 77. You worked wonders. That's verse 14 of Psalm 77. The people you have redeemed. That is verse 15 of Psalm 77. If there was such a thing as plagiarism or copyright, Asaph would have been done. He's milking Exodus 15. Why? Your path led through the sea. The distress which first drove him to his knees now drives him to open up his Bible. And as he reads the story of Exodus, he is reminded of God's power in the past. And you can almost hear the clogs in his mind turning as he thinks and he muses, okay, my circumstances and my emotions are as changeable as the waves of the sea in which I'm sinking. But God's character 
is an unchangeable and immovable rock that I can and must swim to. If you look at verse 16, the water saw you, O God, the water saw you and writhed, the very depths were convulsed. You can almost hear Asaph saying, okay, writhe not at the sight of the sea, but behold the one whom the sea writhes at. Here is the power of God displayed as he led his people through the Red Sea. If you're sinking tonight, if you feel like your head's bobbing and about to drown, the hand of Christ comes and says, listen, look to the past and see the powerful God. Now we can read Exodus. And actually the story of the Exodus still reminds us of God's power for his people. But actually we can think to a greater Exodus through a deeper sea. See, the Lord Jesus led that greater exodus. The dry ground that he trod upon was not the bed of the Red Sea, but it was the ground of the valley of the shadow of death. And he brought salvation from the great oppressor of the evil one, and he brought redemption from slavery to sin, so that he might do what? Lead an exodus in his resurrection. Take you by the hand and lead you to life. The Lord Jesus is the one who did all the miracles before men, just as Moses did before Pharaoh. He even calmed the sea. He trod upon the sea. And yet the greater exodus was seen in his resurrection from the dead. You feel this hand beneath your chin? I was sinking in the depths, but Christ had his hand under my chin. But actually, in this phrase, your path led through the sea, Asaph is reminding himself not only of God's power in the present, uh, power in the past, but also God's presence in the present. Look at verse 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What an anticlimax, isn't it? You've just gone from the God powerful over the sea to sheep. What a total anticlimax. But actually in this phrase is the critical thing that Asaph needs to know. You led your people through the sea. You can hear an objection rising in his mind that says, okay, if he was powerful in the past and I'm in the sea, is there no power for me? The sea in the Bible is a picture of all chaos and rebellion and death. That is why in the new creation we're told there shall be no sea. It's gone. The fact that God's path led through the sea shows that he is powerful over chaos, death and destruction. And it is to say that actually his path for you may be through chaos and pain and destruction. Uh, Spurgeon has a great quote. It will come up on the screen. God's way is in the sea. 
in things changeable, ungovernable, vast, unfathomable, terrible, overwhelming. The Lord has the ruling power. See, God's path for your life may be through through the sea of distress. And God's leading will not always be through mighty miracles, but actually might be through the very mundane. By the hand of Moses and Aaron, think I'd prefer a path through the Red Sea. This, you know, unimpressive, stuttering murderer? That's the hand you're giving me? But actually, his power may be displayed in might, taking you through the sea on dry ground, but his power may also be displayed in putting your hand in the hand of a fellow disciple who will swim and tread water with you in the sea. See, sometimes we miss God working in the very mundane. You know, God, I cannot see your footprints. I can't see any mighty works that are clearing the sea before me, that are removing me from this. And we miss the fact that actually he has given us the hand of Moses and Aaron, the hand of a fellow Christian disciple that is going to be God's means of bringing you through this distress. Your path led through the sea, but you led your people like a flock. Isn't Psalm 23 interesting? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That is, he does not always spare us from the valley, but he is always with us in the valley. He does not always spare us from the sea, but he is always with us in the sea. Here are the two hands of Christ. The hand of his powerful acts in the past and the hands of his presence in the present. There's a great ending to Pilgrim's Progress. I quote this too often, uh, but I love it. And at the end of Pilgrim's Progress, it's a story of a Christian who's walking from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And Pilgrim, uh, uh, the main Pilgrim Christian, is nearing the end of his journey. He's almost at the gates of the city. And yet there before him lies a river. Bunyan, who wrote it, is picturing um, the final journey of death. And listen to how he describes this. Then Christian and his fellow program hopeful addressed themselves to the water. And entering, Christian began to sink. And crying out to his good friend, hopeful, he said, I sink in deep waters, the billows go over my head, all his waves go over me, Selah. Then said hopeful, be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good. Then said Christian, Ah, my friend, the sorrows of death have compassed about me. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. And with that, a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian so that he could not see before him. His head was sinking beneath the sea. Hopeful, therefore, had much ado to keep his brother's head above water. Yes, sometimes he would be quite gone down, and there, ere a while, he would rise up again half dead. 
Hopeful also would endeavor to comfort him, saying, Brother, I see the gate and men standing by it to receive us. But Christian would answer, Tis you, tis you they wait for. But Hopeful said, These troubles and these distresses that you go through in the waters are no sign that God has forsaken you. Then I saw in my dream that Christian was in a muse, to whom also Hopeful added this word, Be of good cheer, Christian. Jesus makes you whole. And with that, Christian break out with a loud voice, Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, When thou pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And then they both took courage. And the enemy was after that as still as stone until they had gone over. See, what is Christian Nate? He needs to have his eyes turned from self and circumstances to God. If you're swimming in the sea tonight, what does Psalm 77 say? It says, cry out to God, cry out again and again. It says, turn your view from self to him and find these two hands, his power in the past and his presence in the presence. And just like Christian, even in the face of death, you will find firm ground. But maybe for others of us, uh, we need to be hopeful. Uh, we need to be those who actually God says to the drowning Christian, I'm going to place your hand in the hand of Ian and Alex. I'm going to place your hand in the hand of Mark and Laura. You are going to be my means of bringing this person safe home. Uh, Maybe tonight, the person that is sitting next to you is drowning. And you could be the means that God uses to just remind them of those hands underneath their chin. That the Lord Jesus holds us fast. Your path led through the sea. Let's pray.